Our first scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Luke, chapter 23, verses 1 through 5. Now listen to and hear the word of God. Then the assembly rose as a body and brought Jesus before Pilate. They began to accuse him, saying, We found this man inciting our nation, forbidding us to pay taxes to Caesar, and saying that he himself is the Messiah, a king. Then Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? He answered, You say so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no basis for an accusation against this man. But they were insistent and said, he stirs up the people by teaching throughout all Judea from Galilee where he began even to this place. Here ends our first scripture reading. Our second text is from the Gospel of Mark, the 11th chapter, verses uh, 15 through 18. The very first line of this text says, then they came to Jerusalem. The then, just for context, is that Jesus has just ridden into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey uh, or a small horse. He's been hailed as uh, the king of the Jews, been hailed as the Messiah, the Christ, the savior of God's people and the savior of the world. Uh, It's a day that we mark called Palm Sunday. It's the beginning of Holy Week and the events that lead up to Good Friday and Easter Sunday. That's the then in this story. And what we soon discover is that after the crowds had dissipated, Jesus had something to do. And this is the story that tells what happened next. Then they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who were selling and those who were buying in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. He was teaching and saying, is it not written that my house shall be a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers? And when the chief priests and the scribes heard it, they kept looking for a way to kill him, for they were afraid of him because the whole crowd was spellbound by his teaching. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Before we pray, I just want to share about the big idea behind this four-week sermon series that will cover uh, the Sundays in August. The big idea of this series is that behind every radical action of Jesus, behind every radical teaching of Jesus, there is a radical truth to be discovered. Behind every radical action and behind every radical teaching, there is a radical truth to be discovered, a truth about Jesus' character and his mission, a truth about the nature of God, and a truth about what it means to be part of God's family on God's good earth. And so during the month of August, we're, we're looking at some stories from Jesus' life that caused great controversy, stories that built what we might call the religious and political indictment and case against him. Stories that cemented the road he'd be forced to walk as he headed toward a Roman cross on a hill called the Skull. Now, it's important to note that though Jesus' actions and teachings were considered to be problematic, that's where we get the sermon title, they were considered to be problematic by the religious leaders of his time. 
He was only trying to be faithful to God. In other words, he wasn't trying to be a problem. He wasn't trying to be ornery. He wasn't trying uh, uh, to be difficult. He was trying to be faithful to God. He was simply living out his vocation. And as he lived it out, the people, and in particular the leaders, thought that was a problem. And so in observing and learning about why he did what we did, why he did rather what he did, we gain a deeper insight as to what we are called to do in this season of our faith and life, who we're called to be as friends and followers of Christ. With that said, let's go to God in prayer. Lord, we give you thanks that you meet us in this place. We thank you that you do not forsake us. We thank you that you hear our every prayer and that you are with us every step of the way, that we are not alone. We're also grateful for the ways in which you speak truth into our lives, and we pray even boldly that you would do such a thing, that through the reflection on these texts, that the truth we need to hear would come into our hearts and into our minds and into our hands, that this truth might even challenge us and perhaps change us to be more like your son, Jesus the Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. My maternal grandmother, uh, her name was Olympia Pino. She would have turned 100 years old this week. Uh, she died actually in 2012 at the age of 89. My love for golf, uh, my love for Pitzel cookies, my love for cable news, and my love for all-you-can-eat buffets came from my grandmother. During my childhood, my grandparents would leave their home in central Florida for the summer, and they would stay in a rustic cabin that they had uh, renovated in the exurbs of Philadelphia. Both my parents worked full-time jobs, so in the summer, if we weren't in camp, uh, my grandparents watched us. This was our elementary and preteen years. And I remember the very first time, I remember it so clearly, the very first time my grandmother scolded me. I remember the very first time my grandmother scolded me. I had talked back to her. I made some sort of snide remark, and I distinctly remember her raising her voice, extending her index finger, pointing at me, saying, no, you are not going to speak to me that way. That is intolerable. Now, up until that point in my life, I, I was probably 10 years old. Uh, she had never corrected me. And maybe you can remember the first time uh, one of your grandparents corrected you. Maybe it was one of your first memories ever. For me, it was about 10 years old. So she had never corrected me before. So as she's doing it, I remember just absolutely being gobsmacked. Like I just remember being stunned. I thought to myself, I didn't know you had this in you. Like I didn't know you could get this angry. I didn't know that you could say no to me or set a boundary. I suspect that uh, for, for some of us, our perception of Jesus is akin to my 10-year-old perception of my grandmother. She was not too strict. She was pretty lenient. She was gracious. She never ran too hot, never ran too cold, steady, right down 
the middle of the fairway, both literally and metaphorically. And for the most part, she let me do what I wanted to do. And in her sight, I believed I could do no wrong. Then, almost out of nowhere, critique comes. A no is spoken and a boundary is established. Like I said, some of us think about Jesus in these terms. He's not too strict, pretty lenient, gracious, never runs too hot, never runs too cold, steady, right down the middle of the fairway. For the most part, I mean, he lets me do whatever it is I, I want to do with my life. And really, at the end of the day, I can't do any wrong in his sight. Then, almost out of nowhere, critique comes. A no is spoken, and a boundary is established. And that's the Jesus that we meet this morning in Mark chapter 11. And some of us didn't know that he had it in him. This is not the meek and mild Bethlehem child. This is the grown-up God-man from the backwater town of Nazareth whose no and whose boundaries and whose critique comes in the form of flipped tables and physically restraining people who he had prohibited from completing their daily tasks in the temple. For some of us, this seems out of character for Jesus, at least the Jesus that we thought we knew. He's definitely agitated, and as often is the case, and perhaps this is true in your life, the agitated becomes the agitator. The agitated becomes the agitator. Now, to be sure, Jesus did put a lot of stress on the status quo, and he stressed the people that were resolved to maintain it. He was an agitator of the religious establishment of his time. Nowhere is that more evidence than in this particular story from Mark 11. Again, for context, he's just rented into Jerusalem, hailed as the Messiah. And on the very first day that he is there, one of the first acts he commits to is to go into the temple and disrupt it, to clear it out. Now, if we're going to understand the radical action and the radical truth behind that action, we must understand why Jesus and what Jesus quotes from the Hebrew Bible in his reprimand of those in the temple that day. He says that my house shall be a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. The first part about a house for all nations, that's actually from Isaiah 56. The second part about a den of robbers, that's from the prophet Jeremiah, the seventh chapter, verse 11. And in the Greek text of Mark 11, the word that we translate to the English word robber in this phrase, den of robbers, is not the traditional Greek word for thief. That traditional Greek word to talk about an individual thief is kleptus. It's where we get the word kleptomaniac. The word kleptus isn't used here. Not talking about an individual thief. It's a different word. It's the word leistes. And that had a very nuanced meaning in the ancient world. Leistes weren't individual thieves. They were robbers. They were thieves to be sure. But they belonged to a gang. They belonged to a conglomerate or a group of outlaws, kind of like the mafia. 
They belong to a group like that. A helpful illustration uh, here may be that of Jesse James. You've heard of that great gunslinger, right? Of the Wild West of the 1860s to the 1880s. Uh, Jesse James wasn't a solo act. He had a, a, a posse, the James Younger Gang, and they robbed 20 banks and 20 trains from Iowa to Texas to West Virginia over two decades. Here's the point. Jesus is not talking about an individual thief when he says den of robbers, as if these thieves are disconnected from one another. Rather, he's talking about a group of thieves that are a cohort. They are a collective, and they are unified in their criminality and their malevolence. And so when you combine this idea of a house of prayer for all nations with this understanding of what it, Jesus was talking about, rather, when he talked about den of robbers, the radical truth behind Jesus' radical action comes into focus. You see, the temple cult and the temple leadership of Jesus' day were not seeking to fulfill the promise of Isaiah 56, where all would be welcome into the family and the household of God. Instead, this den of robbers, this cohort, rallied around the idea that there were those that needed to be kept out. They needed to be excluded. Sinners, Gentiles, Samaritans, the demon-possessed, the infirmed, and others who were considered to be unworthy or disqualified to enter into God's house. This exclusion, however, is viewed by those who are doing the excluding as a virtue, as something that's positive. Theologian Miroslav Volf says it's the politics of purity, where those who are setting up the exclusionary tactics who are keeping people on the outside view their own action in a positive way because they're keeping things pure, purifying a nation, purifying a church, purifying even a neighborhood or a family. What they're doing in their own eyes is good. To say it another way, to say it succinctly, the idea of the, this politics of purity means that we exclude others believing that it's a sign of our own virtue. It's a sign of our own virtue. We're doing the right thing. And lamentably, history is replete with such examples. We can't go into those examples now. What we need to do is stay in the history of Jesus. And though it appears that the temple had become the headquarters or home base of a so-called den of robbers who were unified in their mission to exclude those they deemed impure, Jesus is ready to upset that status quo. He's ready to upset the balance. Jesus believes that that is their crime. That's what makes them this den of robbers. My house shall be a house of prayer for all nations, but you've made it a den of robbers. And we have to ask, what is it that they're robbing? What is that they are stealing? They're, they're stealing, they're robbing human dignity. They're, they're, they're robbing people of value. They're robbing people of being seen and heard. They're robbing people of an opportunity to be fully part of the community. What is maybe even more egregious, they're, they're robbing people of the opportunity to, to know that God loves them, that God says that my house is your house and that you're part of my family the way that we said for, for Owen and Thomas that you belong to me. We rob them of the opportunity to hear that good news. And Jesus, in this text, make no mistake, is furious. He's furious. Jesus is enraged, and he's not afraid to show it 
turning over tables and physically knocking things out of people's hands and restraining them so they could not do the business that they typically attended to. And, and it's here that we must acknowledge the radical truth behind Jesus' radical action. There are some things that Jesus simply will not tolerate. There are some things that Jesus simply will not tolerate. I wanna close with this. There is a potential, perhaps even a tendency, to be provoked by a text like this in such a way that leads us to believe that, that we have some sort of prophetic righteousness and permission to turn over tables in this world. I mean, what would Jesus do? Well, he would turn over tables. Well, that's what I'm going to go do. It's this sense of what I would like to call divine deputization, right? that I am divinely deputized to purify the nation, the society, the city, the church, or Christianity itself, or perhaps even you. Southern Baptist Russell Moore, and some of you may have seen this, uh, was interviewed by NPR uh, this last week. He's uh, the editor-in-chief of Christianity Today, the premier evangelical publication in the English-speaking world. Uh, Moore's written a new book called Losing Our Religion, an Altar Call for Evangelical America. And Moore is deeply concerned about the evangelical church. He's observed, and this is a quote, congregations are torn apart over Donald Trump, Christian nationalism, racial injustice, disgraced leaders, and covered up scandals. Left behind, he says, are millions of believers who counted on the church to be a place of belonging and hope. When asked by the interviewer to describe the crisis as he perceives it, he referenced the common occurrence he's experienced over the past several years when he's speaking with pastors. They tell him, the pastors would tell him that they had preached a sermon on Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, or perhaps they referenced the Sermon on the Mount in their sermon, uh, elevating concepts like turning the other cheek, loving your enemy, blessing those who curse you, going the second mile. They would be included in a sermon. And then after that sermon, these pastors would tell more that, that they come out the door and they, and they say to the preacher, uh, where did you get those liberal talking points? Moore said that what was alarming to him is that in most of these scenarios, when the pastor would say, I'm literally quoting Jesus Christ, the response wouldn't be, I apologize. The response would be yes, but that doesn't work anymore. That's weak. In my opinion, they want the John Wayne Jesus who flips over tables and restrains the so-called impure for one reason, because they want to justify their own desire to flip over tables and restrain others too. Now, to be sure, it's not just the evangelical church that has a problem. We're Presbyterian, we're part of the mainline church. Uh, we're kind of middle of the road people, so we have evangelicals, we have liberals, 
everything in between. But the mainline church needs a wake-up call as well. The liberal church, too. Because today you have preachers and scholars and lay folk claiming for themselves prophetic identity and prophetic insight, saying that I'm a prophet of this time and I'm going to speak to all of those whose tables need to be turned. By the way, this is an aside. Prophets were never self-appointed or self-declared in the scriptures, right? They were called by God. And don't forget, they were reluctant to accept that call. They didn't want to tell anybody about it, but today those in the mainline church and those in the liberal church are tweeting or preaching or writing about how prophetic they are. There are folks in the mainline and liberal church who believe that Christ has given them permission, has deputized them to flip tables and restrain those deemed to be impure. And the impure in this case, let's be honest, are Christians who vote Republican, who support free markets and diverse forms of energy production and consumption, who are pro-life, who believe in a strong military and who support meritocracy and the strength of the nuclear family. Those tables need to be turned, so says the main line in liberal church. They need to be restrained, and we're going to be the ones to do it. The challenge of our time, and this challenge cuts across the fundamentalists, the evangelicals, the mainliners, and the liberal church. The challenge of our time is to not have our first instinct or our first act to be I need to be like Jesus, and I need to go and overturn your table. Our first act in the shadow of a text like this should be self-examination. Where am I a part of this den of robbers? Where am I a part of this cohort of thieves? What tables in my life or in my faith community need to be overturned because I or we have ignored the command of Jesus that God's house, that God's family shall be a house for all people. Where have I made it instead a house of exclusion reserved for the ones I or we deem to be pure? This ending is going to require you to dig deep into your Sunday school days. I'm not going to spend a lot of time explaining it. I think it speaks for itself. I think that everyone today in the church loves being Jonah. They love being Jonah. Not a lot of people love being Nineveh. They love being Jonah. They don't love being Nineveh. A lot of people love being Nathan. Oh, they love being Nathan. They don't like being the murderer and adulterer David who gets called out. They love Jesus. They love being Jesus for the world. But they don't want to be the money changers. And they don't want to be the robbers. These are tenuous times. And if the Christian and the Christian church's witness is to be faithful in these conflicted and divided days, then we have to ask ourselves, how am I a money changer? How am I part of a den of robbers? What beliefs and behaviors in my life and in the life of this church are intolerable to Christ? The tables in my life that need to be flipped, the restraint that needs to come upon me, the no, the critique, the boundary. 
It happens from time to time that people will come out and, and greet me at the door and they'll say something like, ooh, that sermon, I'm gonna pass it on because I have a lot of people that need to hear it. <laughs> Today, this sermon is not for them. It's for you and it's for me. To receive such a word, it'll take humility, honesty, and a willingness to repent. It will take a concerted effort to address the log in our own eye before we address the speck in our neighbor's eye. It's gonna require empathy. It's gonna require us showing up as learners. It's gonna require both neighborly and enemy love. It's gonna require forgiveness and reconciliation. And it will most certainly require grace-covered courage for the church to live into this profound vision that God's house is a house of prayer for all people. Amen.